Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome everyone to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to him. I'm Kyle Pietrantonio, your co-host. And I'm Father Randy Sly, and today we will be talking with Curtis Martin, who is the founder and CEO of the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, also known as FOCUS, one of the fastest growing college outreach apostolates in the Catholic Church. FOCUS was founded in 1998 as a national outreach to college students on campus, starting with just two missionaries on one campus, and I believe it was right near me in Benedictine College out in Atchison. And uh, they now have hundreds of full-time missionaries serving tens of thousands of college students on campuses throughout the United States. Curtis holds a master's degree in theology and is the author of the best-selling book, Made for More. He also is the co-author of The Real Story, Understanding the Big Picture of the Bible with Dr. Ed Shree, and Boys to Men, The Transforming Power of Virtue with Dr. Tim Gray. And in 2004, Curtis and his wife, Michael Ann, were awarded the Benamorenti Medal by Pope St. John Paul II for outstanding service to the church. In 2011, Pope Benedict XVI appointed Curtis as a consultant to the Pontifical Council on the new evangelization. Curtis and Michael Ann live in Colorado. They've been blessed with nine children and six grandchildren. So, Curtis, welcome to the program. Father Kyle, great to be with you. Thanks, Curtis. We're so glad you're with us uh, on our program. And we'd like to, for you to share a little bit about your own upbringing and, and background and, and how you got to Colorado, uh, if you could. Sure. Well, uh, life started probably on or near the campus of BYU. I was uh, conceived outside of wedlock. My mother was a, a BYU student. I don't know much more about her than that. She gave me up for adoption, and I was adopted by a, a couple uh, out in Southern California. And so my mom was Catholic. My dad would later convert to Catholicism, but, at the, but uh, during my early years was not. And so I grew up kind of as a, uh, uh, the prodigal son. I had everything I wanted. And it was a great beginning. I watched my father come to faith right in front of my eyes, and I threw it all away. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, which were not the most pro-Catholic, pro-Christian moments in our culture. And I drank deeply of the secular culture and was very far away from home. I, wanted to, I just realized I was ruining my life, didn't know how to restore that. So when it came time to go to college, I just wanted to go as far away as I could and hit the reset button. My mother had gone to LSU, and so I went to LSU, which was a long way from Southern California. And in fact, if you've ever been in Southern California and then been to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it's not just a long way, it's a different world. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, right. Um, so, and fortunately, a lot of people back in the, in the day, uh, a lot of people were going to LSU and losing their faith because it's, it can be a pretty crazy place. But I actually got there in August and by October had rediscovered by the grace of God, uh, faith in Jesus Christ, recommitted my life to him as a 20 year old. And the only uh, added piece there is that the only Christians that I could find were evangelicals. And so my return to Christ was not a return to the church. That took another three, three and a half years. But it was all the, the tools and habits that my evangelical friends gave me, faith in Christ, a love for the scriptures, a life of prayer. And then when I discovered the church fathers, found myself being compelled to uh, return to the Catholic church. That led me uh, back to California. I started a business with my father. So that got me to California. I met and married a wonderful woman who had had a similar path. And our earliest conversations were about how to reach this generation of people who were drifting and running away from Christ uh, as Catholics. And so we eventually met Scott Hahn, and he invited us to move to Steubenville. And I took a master's degree being mentored by Scott, uh, and then met Archbishop Chaput right after he was, well, yeah, just before he was appointed to Denver. And right after he was appointed to Denver, he said, I want you to move your family to Denver. Let's launch this focus thing from Colorado. So that's the 35 cent tour. Oh, that's amazing. Now, you were in college, kind of drawn toward those the evangelical world. What was that like as a former Catholic coming back to faith, but fighting it through the evangelicals? How did that change you for the future? Yeah, great question, Father. You know, I, I would say I wasn't so much drawn to them as they were drawn to me. Uh, they, they made themselves available, and there, were, there just weren't Catholics in that space. I, I knew enough Catholic uh, catechesis to, to know that they didn't agree with everything the church taught, and at times they were very explicit about that. I wasn't uh, as convinced. In fact, I eventually would write down a list of Catholic teachings that I wanted to do some further study on. I had about 13 items. But what they did for me, which is a great favor, is they put Christ first. Sometimes within the Catholic Church, Christ is mediated by many, many other things, other realities that are all important and all beautiful, but they're meant to be um, the setting, if you will, for the gem of the faith, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. The evangelicals uh, sometimes missed some of those accompanying pieces, frequently did, but they got the, they got the centerpiece uh, very, very clearly. And that was a great gift. I remember as a, just before I gave my life to Christ, I was talking to an evangelical friend of mine and he said, how's it going? And I said, well, you know, Roy, I am trying to get my life straight now so I can give it to God. And uh, he said, no, no, Curtis, you got it backwards. Give your life to Jesus Christ and he'll straighten it out. And that getting the horse back in front of the cart probably was the greatest gift they gave me. Many, many other things. And I, to this day, remain very, very grateful uh, to my evangelical brothers and sisters and dear friends. But that was the fundamental piece. Paradoxically, that made every, over time, made everything Catholicism make more sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so that was the beautiful secret decoder ring that should not be a secret. Curtis, I want to double click on the part where you and your wife are exploring what will become focus. Kind of dive into a little bit of the genesis of those conversations and, and, and really the early, early days, months in, in the program that became focus. No, great question, Kyle. I, I had been leading a Bible study since my first summer back from LSU. At Campus Crusade for Christ taught me how to lead Bible studies, and I was leading Bible studies. It was very ecumenical. I wasn't practicing the Catholic faith. There were some Catholics in the group. Uh, there were a lot of non-Catholics in the group. Every week, uh, my parents had this big, giant living room. Even after I moved out of their house, 
Uh, I would still come back on Friday evenings to leave the Bible study. And there were 45, 50 people coming every week. And uh, they watched me uh, have my second conversion, my conversion to Catholic faith. And a number of them joined with me and, and, and came into the Catholic Church. Others remained committed evangelicals. This was going on for years. My wife is five years my junior. And one night she showed up having dr- driven a friend who had come before but needed a ride. And uh, we met. She actually went home, and I like to tell the story. She went home and told her dad, Dad, I, I, met, I met the man I'm going to marry tonight. She wasn't talking about me. It was another guy. Eventually, I, I was able to win her over. But in our earliest conversations, you know, I realized she had followed a very similar path, had gone to uh, an evangelical university, actually, and had just recently returned to the Catholic faith when I met her. And so our earliest conversations, long before there was any romance, was, you know, what would it be like to be part of a group of people who were doing outreach on college campuses to draw people back? These people had a profound impact on us, but why, why do you have to leave the Catholic Church to find Jesus Christ? So that's what we wanted to address, and friendship turned into romance, turned into uh, marriage, and so we were married, still looking for a way to do this. I didn't know how to, how to get focus started. The Catholic Church the beauty of the evangelical church is you can go anywhere and start something up and you're good to go. The Catholic church is complicated. There's a lot of toes on the dance floor. And I didn't have the theological training. And I had been looking for years for somebody who believed, was Catholic, thoroughly Catholic, and believed the Bible. And one day, Michael Ann and I went and to a conference. Uh, we were expecting our first son. And uh, we met Scott Hahn. And, and she leaned over and said, this could be the guy. And so it, it in fact, was. And it, 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 began a great friendship. Scott had just accepted a position at Franciscan University. He wasn't there yet. And in fact, he was so excited, he gave us Kimberly's phone number. We called Kimberly that, later that evening, and she actually told us that she was converting to Catholicism before she told Scott. She was so excited. She had just decided that weekend. So we be- developed a great friendship and eventually got the degrees, met the people, and, w- and, and developed the program so we could actually launch. So uh, when you talk about the methodologies that, that you and Michael Ann were talking about earlier on, and, and then as you began to see it kind of germinate into something more substantive, especially during your days at Steubenville, what methodologies did you see that were necessary to put in place that might be different than how things were normally done before that? Well, I might even reference uh, this great book, from Christendom to Apostolic Mission, essentially uh, by Monsignor Shea, who is on our board. It, it, there's actually a group of people that worked on it, but Monsignor is the primary author. Uh, and he highlights that. I mean, I, I, part of the issue was we wanted to put Christ first, that I, I believe that this generation of people have less interest in organizations of any kind. While the, the Catholic Church is the most interesting, most beautiful organization in the history of the world, it pales in comparison to her founder. And to so to put the, Jesus first, to put the, the scriptures. You know, when I first started leading Bible studies in the Catholic Church, I had uh, Catholic friends tell me, no, you're not supposed to be studying the Bible. I knew enough church teaching by then to say, no, absolutely. You know what? I used to always love to say, no, you can actually get a plenary indulgence for reading the Bible for a half an hour. They, the church really wants us to read the Bible. At the time, that wasn't understood. And so to be deeply Christ-centered, Christocentric, to be deeply biblical, and then to be committed to what Pope Francis will later call accompaniment, but uh, we use the biblical term discipleship. Those three keys, and uh, as time has matured, and we've watched and looked at this, we would now call it the method modeled by the master. And so, because we realized 
well, you know, one of the things evangelicals did was one-on-one discipleship. But as I, the more I studied, the more we were practicing, I realized, you know, Jesus didn't practice one-on-one discipleship. It's nowhere in the scriptures. You can see him speaking occasionally one-on-one with Nicodemus or the woman at the well, but you never see him with his disciples when there's just one of, one of them. They're always in groups of three or 12, 70, whatever it might be. We realized the one-on-one discipleship actually isn't a biblical principle. And so we shifted in focus to group discipleship, certainly still being available to talk to people one-on-one, always. But the primary emphasis, we're trying to build community, a fellowship, a cluster of believers who can strengthen one another and be light into the darkness of our culture. I think it would be helpful for the audience, some of whom might not know yet a good deal about Focus, Curtis, kind of give us the landscape of of Focus. I mean, tell us about your engagements with colleges and universities, a little bit of, of, of how it works. Sure, happy to do that. Yeah, Focus, as, as the introduction said, we started with just a couple of part-time missionaries on one campus at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. My dear friend, co-author, Edward Sree, uh, who now works for us full-time, but at the time he was a professor at Benedictine. And so we started there. We thought we were going to launch, and we were going to do a retreat at first, a leadership retreat. And as we got together, we realized we had studied together. He, Ted was very familiar with what was going on in, our, in, in the planning stages for Focus. And about three months before it happened, we realized we're not doing a leadership conference. We're launching Focus. And so what do we do? The goal would be, we started with volunteers, but now the goal would be to hire recent college graduates as missionaries, to train them, to equip them, and to place them as teams on university campuses, Catholic universities, secular universities, private, uh, non-Catholic universities. Uh, We're happy to go anywhere. And, And in the last couple of years, we've expanded beyond the United States into Western Europe and now into Mexico as well. The goal would be this, to send a team, a core team for us would be two men and two women. One of the men would be senior and veteran and experienced, and one of the women would be senior and veteran experienced, and they're going to mentor the first-year people in place on campus, and then they'll work with students. The team can grow over time. Our larger teams right now might have seven or eight or, or even nine missionaries, but it starts with four missionaries working with a few dozen students, and at our more mature programs, you now have got seven or eight missionaries working with a 1,000 students. Uh, leading Bible studies on a, a regular basis. We like to do small group Bible studies, say between five and 15 people joining to read through the scriptures. We do discipleship, which Bible studies kind of, as they indicate, we're studying the sacred scriptures within the heart of the church. And we're doing so in small groups so that people can wrestle with the scriptures with some guidance. Discipleship actually asks the second question, which is, how am I now supposed to live now that I'm a a disciple? And that's where we get after the habits of intellectual habits of thought and the the habits of will to be able to form our character or allow Christ to form our character. And the goal would be a simple three-step process. Win people to Christ. I like to highlight a a statement a friend of mine, Peter Herbeck, made several years ago. Uh, We were doing a television show on EW10, and and we just an offhanded comedy goes, you know, Curtis, I think the vast majority of Catholics are in a loveless marriage with God. So when addresses the love affair, that, that our faith should essentially be a love affair. Uh, it's much more than that, just as there's much more to my love affair with my wife than just a love affair, um, but, it, but it, it is essentially a love affair. And a lot of Catholics don't experience their faith that way. A lot of people don't. So the win is all about relationship. Build is, how, what do I need to think and know so I can behave like a mature Christian? And then send, go send people out to win more people and build them up and send. And it creates a snowball of exponential growth where we, you can reach enormous numbers of people 
And we have to, because uh, there, there should be evangelical urgency within the church. This generation of believers is responsible for this generation of people. As Christians, we don't believe in reincarnation. We've got to reach everybody on earth in this generation. And there's only one model that will even offer that, and that is this model of that's, that Jesus himself modeled of, of discipleship, where you can literally reach the entire world in this generation and in every generation. And of course, why would he not give us that model? Because he's always wanted the church to reach the world. That's those were his last words. Go make disciples of all nations. Mm-hmm. Well, now in your on your website, I noticed that there is, I don't know if I would call it a new program, but a new emphasis called Focus 153. Yep. Tell us uh, a little bit about that. Well, the reality of the matter is we just recognized as we moved along that um, there are affinity groups that, that people gather in, and it could be an athletic team, it could be a dorm room or, or a fraternity, it could be a sports team, but maybe the most fundamental affinity group that there are are our ethnic diversity. And so uh, we had to recognize that there, we needed to have a special sensitivity awareness to drawing people in who didn't fit in the, the norm of our affinity groups. So how, how are we, for example, making Korean Catholics comfortable you know, do when we do a hiring event, are we being clear that we've got people that represent various ethnic diversities, uh, ethnicities at the hiring events so that when the candidates come, they feel comfortable? I can say we were founded in Nebraska and Kansas and Colorado. There, in the early days, there weren't a lot of black students involved in our program. In fact, my eldest son, who is a missionary, but had sponsored one of the one of the early black missionaries on onto staff. And Helcio turned to Brock the first day of training and said, Hey, Brock. You said there weren't many black staff members. I don't see any. And Brock says, well, there are now, but we've got to recognize that when you're the only person who looks like you, you're very aware of that, even if other people aren't. In fact, if you, this, is, this is biblical. The first crisis in the church was that the Christians who converted from Judaism were being treated better than the Christians, who were, the, the widows who had converted from, from the Greek and from the, the pagan nations. The deacons, the seven deacons were brought about because they needed to solve this problem. We need to have special sensitivity to make sure that everybody's welcome. This has been a huge problem for the church throughout the centuries. You know, we just forget, oh, there's, a, there's still a whole big world out there waiting for Christ. My, my wife was doing a paper for the, her class at the Augusta Institute, and they talked about the, they're on the Emperor Charlemagne. And they said it represents in some ways a high point for the church. And, and I, I was talking to her, I said, yeah, but also a, kind of the beginning of the end, because Christianity in Europe started to get really comfortable, and they forgot to evangelize the rest of the world, which is what they were supposed to be doing. And we reduced mission to feeding the poor, which is absolutely essential, but not the most important. Feeding the, the, the souls is the most important. And for many centuries, in many places, Catholic missionary effort has been reduced to the corporal works of mercy, which are essential but they, mm-hmm. they are secondary to the spiritual works of mercy, and we've got to reignite that. That's awesome, Curtis. That's kind of music to my ears, because in our network of schools, we prize both works of mercy, but we say the spiritual ought to have some primacy, right? And, you know, that begets corporal works for sure. Would love to hear some, Curtis, about the training that these missionaries get before going into this battlefield, which is getting fiercer by the year, as we know. Uh, Absolutely. Talk, talk to us a bit about, about that part of, of the program. Yeah, so uh, thank you. It's a great question, Kyle. 
we have our, our initial training is 57 weeks long. And so we hire somebody and they come to a five week on-site training at this point in time, we're training. Uh, this takes place right after graduation. So in late May, early June, we gather right now we're gathering at, at Ave Maria university in South Florida and at university of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. And we train half our staff down South and half up North. And that we're going through prayer. They're, they're, they're praying more than they've ever prayed in their life. Not only having classes on prayer, but they're having a daily Holy hour, daily mass, daily rosary. And we're teaching them how to pray so that they can pray sure. in the next hour, not just theories of prayer. Uh, they're, they're learning a scripture. We're going through how to, how to read the Bible from a Catholic perspective. They're going to learn how to raise uh, funds. All of our missionaries meet okay. with friends and family members uh, and parishioners and ask them to support their mission. And so they need to know how to do that because that's going to be the next thing they're going to do in training. We're also going through basic apologetics. And those apologetics have, have turned in the early days from biblical apologetics for engaging evangelicals to now issues of apologetics having to deal with transgenderism and homosexuality and, and the, the moral issues of the day, which are so dominant on college campuses. Oh, yeah. That training continues. They all have a mentor. And so the next few weeks, they're all dispersed. They're out raising money, but they're meeting regularly with their mentor. Uh, we're also encouraging, the mentors are encouraging them to maintain the, the daily habits of prayer. And at the end of the summer, they gather on the teams they've now been assigned to, and we begin. So phase one is on campus. Phase two is the fundraising. Phase three is the teams gather for about three or four weeks before the students get there, and we start the practical trainings, how to lead a Bible study, how to do discipleship, how to do outreach. We used to train that in May, and then we didn't use it until September. We now use it, we now train in, in August and use it the next week. Okay. And it's a much more effective tool. And then once the students arrive, the training doesn't end. All year long, they're being mentored. As we said, one veteran man and one veteran woman training the, the new ones. They go through the whole school year. They come back and do five more weeks of training on campus, and then they're no longer new staff, but we don't stop the training. We're, we All we do is train and form. That's all we do because what I always like to remind our friends from the outside looking in focus looks like a campus ministry program, but from the inside looking out, we're not a campus ministry program. We're a campus ministers program. Mm -hmm. Our missionaries are our primary mission field. If they're flourishing, they'll bear fruit. And so we really want to make sure they're taken care of. And it, it's a huge challenge for the church. The average youth minister works for less than two years in the Catholic church right. and never works for the church ever again. Wow. We ask for a minimum of two years. We get an average of almost four years, and almost everybody who works for Focus goes on to either volunteer or work for the church in some capacity afterwards. I was kind of curious about that because I know that, you know, as a convert, I had a lot of experience working in some of those parachurch organizations. And one of the things that we saw is that those that were influenced by the organization in college went on to work for that organization when they graduated. And a lot of times afterward, they just kind of went off into oblivion. What can you tell us about your former focus ministers and missionaries after they're done? And what kind of uh, stories and things have you heard about them coming back into just being in the church as a whole? That's a great question, Father. We can tell you anecdotal, and, and I'll share that. But before I do, let me say this is, a, this is actually the $64,000 question. It's not, can we do campus ministry well on campus? That's really, really, really important. The question is, are we because if, if that's the case, and after they're after we're done, nothing has changed, 
than we are, as one person said, daycare for big kids. Our job is not to try to keep college students safe in college. Our job is to try to make college students dangerous to a culture of death. People who can go out and be light uh, and, and actually transform the world. And that takes place after college, but it starts on uh, college. So several years ago, we're in the middle of a campaign trying to get to 250 campuses uh, and, and, and some other things. But uh, the, the chair of our campaign, when we met him, he and his wife, he said, I got some questions about you and, and where your alumni are. And he, so he, he asked from the shooting from the hip. He said, here's my questions. And he, he said, I, I have five. He actually asked us 15 questions of which we could answer about five. He goes, do you want to know the answer to the other 10? We said, absolutely. Yeah, we're, com we're committed to ongoing improvement. We want to. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, I would be willing to hire an outside researcher to go and survey your alumni and, and, and create a, a sample group and then have them compared to folks their, their same age that weren't involved with focus. And what we saw was a dramatic shift. Uh, there's about a 15% likelihood that somebody being raised Catholic will be practicing Catholic after they graduate from college. And there's about an 85% chance that students involved with focus will be practicing. Now, we wish it was higher, but I always like to point out, Jesus only got 92% of the apostles. So we're one apostle short of Jesus, and we're, we're working to close that. But 15% uh, to 85 is dramatic, but that's not the most dramatic issue. The most dramatic issue was not the numbers, it was the quality issue. When they, they started to talk to the students who had been involved with focus and not, when you said, so you're involved, you're still involved in your faith. Yes. Well, how often do you go to mass? Oh, once a month. Well, we all know that the precepts of the church say you need to go to mass every Sunday and every holy day of obligation, or you're actually not fulfilling the minimum requirements of what it means to be a practicing Catholic. And when you talk to the focus alumni, staff and students said, how are you engaged in faith? Yes. How often do you go to church? Well, I go to church uh, every Sunday and every holy day. And I go frequently throughout the week, sometimes some of many of them every day. So the, the quality there, and then you ask questions of, to, of the groups that weren't involved with Focus. How do you, do you agree with the church's teaching on cohabitation and homosexuality and contraception? And very low percentages, single digit. And then those involved with Focus, very close to you know, 90, 90% great agreement. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And so we really believe this is the key. In fact, we have a, a, a term called our main thing. The main thing is launching college students into lifelong Catholic mission, which is where the real impact is. Uh, we're committed to the university campus, particularly the American university campus, because we want to reach the world. And there are more international students studying in the United States than any place else on earth. So we want to reach the world. And the university is the best place to go. But I always like to remind our staff and our benefactors that universities are like gold mines. That's where you get the gold. But very few people go inside gold mines. Only miners go inside gold mines. If you want gold, you go to jewelry stores. Parishes and families are jewelry stores. And so the real work that's going to really change the culture is going to take place after graduation as people move into neighborhoods and they take jobs either for the church or for secular organizations, and they start to radiate the love of God. And so we're excited. We now have about 45,000 alumni. Uh, of that, there's concentric circles. There's about 1,500 that were former staff members. There's about 5,500 or so, 6,000 that were student leaders, and there are others who were actively involved in the organization. And we expect more. Obviously, uh, the Boy Scouts would say, you know, if a tenderfoot uh, commits a crime, that's probably not going to make the news. If, if an Eagle Scout commits a crime, that might make news. Uh, they, they, they're going to expect more out of their Eagle Scouts.
But we're excited to see that it does seem to be having an impact. I would argue we're serving in one of the most hostile environments in the entire culture. Universities are very, very opposed to Christianity and particularly to Catholicism. So related to that, Curtis, talk to us about some of the logistics of getting plugged into a new university or college setting. Does the college have skin in the game once they allow focus in, in terms of, of it's coming out of some of their campus ministry budget? I know the missionaries have to fund some. Is the bishop involved? Tell us a little bit about the nuance of, of kind of oh, getting plugged you. in. Thank you. Great question. A set of questions, actually, Kyle. And, and uh, yes, so we have self-imposed uh, the requirement that local bishop has to bless what we're doing. Okay. Not just be aware that we're there. Actually, we want his positive blessing. He is uh, the successor of the apostle. We believe that we will not be blessed in the same way if we don't have his blessing there. And so in all cases, uh, we work with uh, through the blessing of the local bishop. Uh, the, the situation of who's engaged varies. So, for example, at Texas A&M or University of Nebraska-Lincoln or University of Florida or LSU, the university does isn't really aware that necessarily aware that focus is there. They're aware that the Catholic Church is there. Our staff come in as contracted employees for the Newman Center, and and so our relationship primarily is with the Newman Center and the diocese or archdiocese, and only secondarily with the school. Now, some of the university presidents or administrators are very committed Catholics, and so we end up becoming friends with them. But we ride piggyback, if you will, on the relationship that's already there. Now, that's very different in a Catholic uh, school like Benedictine uh, or, or Seton Hall, where the relationship is directly with the university because they're Catholic schools. But essentially, it's the same thing. We, we, our staff become staff members, contracted staff members for the, the chaplaincy. Catholic universities don't have Newman centers. They have chaplaincies. Right, Secular right. universities have Newman centers. And so, but we, our staff join that. We like to say, we don't make bad campus ministries good. We make good campus ministries big. We're going to go get more students, but really, and we've done the, the research and the advanced regression analysis, we know statistically that the number one factor in our fruitfulness is the priest we serve. Okay. A priest who loves his priesthood and is, is committed to the evangelization of souls, we just won't lose that battle. Uh, it, it, we, we can make a good program bigger very, very effectively. And then the last piece that you asked, Kyle, is, you know, what's the financial model? Well, evangelization is a search and rescue mission. It's very, very expensive, both with regards to time and energy and, and, and economics, and nobody really is in a position to pay that. So we split the, the responsibilities so that everybody can play a small role. Our staff raise, as we mentioned before, their living expenses, and that covers about 50% of our budget. The campuses pay a fee for our services that's kind of equivalent to one full-time staff member, but they're going to get four. Uh, and, and the staff members will be selected and trained and managed so that they're being cared for. So they're, they're easy employees. And that covers about 20% of our budget. And then I have, we have a development team, a fundraising team, that goes out and raises the other uh, 30% of the budget. Okay. And between all of that, uh, we can piece together what it takes to get folks onto college campus and keep them there and for them to be able to bear uh, just great fruit. When you have a missionary that is working for you, do they stay with one campus their entire time? Uh, In an ideal world, they would, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not an ideal world. Uh, we are growing, so we need to pull veteran staff off of existing campuses so that we can have veteran staff at the new campus. Our staff don't work here forever. 
So we have to replace veteran staff who are leaving. So we try to minimize the, the, the movement of staff whenever possible. The only other exception would be if a staff member says, you know, I'm, I'm not flourishing here. Can I go someplace else? I, I, mm-hmm. I, w- I was raised in Nebraska and you've got me serving in New Jersey and I don't know how to handle the big city or whatever it might be. But I will tell you, I, I was just last week with two staff members, one from NYU in downtown uh, New York, Manhattan, and one from Penn in Philadelphia. And they both grew up in small towns and they're both flourishing. There's already so much turnover. You know, students are mm-hmm. only going to be there for four or five years. And, and so there's a lot of turnover on the student side. So if we can minimize the staff turnover, we do know that when a staff member stays on campus, typically they're going to bear more fruit in their second and third and fourth year than they would if we move them two or three times. Curtis, any discussions about interfacing a graduate degree with their time in ministry? Oh, we already do that. Yeah, we, so we helped to found the Augustine Institute. My dear okay. friends, Tim Gray and uh, Dr. Jonathan Reyes and um, Sean Innerst and uh, Ted Sri. Uh, and I was a founding board member, founding faculty member of the Augusta Institute. They were a, de- a department of focus for the first two years before they were able to get their 501c3 and everything okay. set up. So we have agreements with them. We have missionaries who are studying with the Augusta Institute at UMary, at Benedictine College. Okay. And we've done some business schools. We're also at Notre Dame taking graduate degrees. So absolutely. Great. But we really, we don't want our missionaries doing anything extraordinary or extracurricular in the first year, because just that okay. learning the habit of being a missionary. Sure. So it really is for the veteran staff who okay. do that. In fact, we're working on a, a new strategy that would, would have embedded in it a graduate program for those who would make a longer term commitment to us. Great. And, but we were, it's still kind of on the chalkboard. We're not, uh, we're not ready yeah. to release it, but we really, I re- really do believe that part of what we need to do if we're going to be effective in the culture is first, of course, we need to know and love Jesus Christ and be living in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need to understand that the heresies of the day are intellectual heresies. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to become educated, not, not necessarily a scholar. We right. think the master's degree is the typical level of education. You know, of the 850 staff members we have, we've got three that have doctorates. Uh, I have very intentionally not gone on to get a, a doctorate because we didn't want this to be the work of experts. Evangelization is the work of ordinary Christians and experts, but but the bulk of it's going to be done by ordinary Christians, just like parenting is done by ordinary people. Right. You have a weird situation if you had to get a doctorate to get before you get married. Now, yeah. Curtis, a lot of our audience, well, primarily our audience are administrators, teachers of Catholic schools, uh, mostly high schools and elementary. I'm especially wondering if there are any methodologies, anything Focus is doing that could be implemented on the high school campus, for example, by the campus ministry staff there that might be helpful to really bolster the uh, faith mission of the high school. I think peer ministry, peer mission, peer apostolate is uh, really, really critical. Uh, We know statistically, we know from experience, uh, and we know from history before Christianity was systematic and, and was institutional, it was relational. You know, Jesus Christ you know, won the Apostle John and, and Andrew's heart right at his baptism. He, he won their brothers, uh, James and, and, and Simon, at the Sea of Galilee after his uh, temptations in the, in the desert. And, uh, and he just wowed them, right? It, it was 
uh, for John and Andrew, it was, where are you staying? Come and see. And they stayed with them. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I always like to ask why, why after all of, of the centuries, why would we need to know it's four o'clock in the afternoon? You don't need to know it's four o'clock in the afternoon. What you do need to know is that John knew it was four o'clock in the afternoon because everything in John's life changed at four o'clock in the afternoon. He could measure his entire life by before four o'clock and after four o'clock. And I would follow up and say, what's your four o'clock? Have you encountered Jesus Christ maybe even many times in such a way that you can't live the same way anymore? Later, we're going to see him say, Peter, put out into the deep a, a, a term that is near and dear to you all. And he catches this amazing drought of fish and falls to his knees, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. These guys are mesmerized by Jesus. And my favorite might be Nathaniel, right? Philip says, we've, we found him of whom the Moses wrote. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of uh, Nazareth? Philip just says, come and see. And three verses later, Nathaniel is espousing Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Getting to know Jesus is the game changer. And, and Catholic education needs to be about that. It gains us nothing to profit even the whole world if we lose our soul. That's the great pearl. Now, everything else is, is also good. But if we've lost that, and so the, the, the accompanying piece, then also the Catholic identity piece, uh, is so essential um, and, and the beautiful thing there, and I, this is this is not essential, but I do believe it's a game changer. I think that classical education, which shows the integration of all of the various academic uh, practices and exercises, you'll be able to see that why is why can we even have math? Because God created an ordered universe, mm -hmm. which is also true of why. How does music work? It, it's it's mathematical. It actually right. has proportion. And so in, in the sciences, it has her. And to be able to see all this and to recognize that, that God created all of this and that creation is the primordial basilica. Yep. Um, it, it, it speaks the truths of God, a creator, which St. Paul says uh, we have to work very hard to blind ourselves not to see in Romans chapter one. It, it is self-evident to those who haven't intentionally blinded themselves. Curtis, as, as we wrap up here, just want to get your perspective on, on some of the demographics our church are facing right now, and particularly the not very hopeful ones uh, with some of the, the disaffiliation and um, sacramental rates uh, just on a steep, steep decline, the identity in a lot of our Catholic schools related to, to our faith. Those that are in, in the trenches, our leaders in particular in, in our Catholic schools who are trying to fight this fierce battle day in and day out, what counselor advice do you have for them from your seat? First of all, I want to congratulate those involved with Duke and Altam and those who would be inclined to uh, consider getting involved. What you all are doing is absolutely essential. The institutions don't work. Some of them are broken. And, and so those who have given up their Catholic identity I'm not going to do anything to hasten their demise, but I'm not going to um, in any way cry about it when it happens. But for those who are striving to instill Catholic identity, it's a lot of hard work. If this was easy, it would already be done. But it is possible. My experience in the Catholic Church is that the Catholic Church loses most of the battles, but she loses by forfeit. And when we show up, we win over and over and over again. And so my not only congratulations, but I think the first step is actually to have both a deeply committed prayer and sacramental life but also to have hope. Yep. This is, by God's grace, and, and along with our effort, very possible. In fact, I think we win most of the time when we show up. We've got to recognize that the young people in our culture today, while they're swept away by the culture, 
the culture leaves them broken and starving and thirsty. And the church can solve all of those longings because Jesus Christ can solve all those longings. And so we have what they're looking for. We just have to render it attractive to them because they don't believe we have what they're looking for. So Duke and Altum's doing exactly the right work. We're thrilled uh, by our friendship with you all. We're hoping that as we connect, one of the things you do is life's a relay race. And you can run as fast as you want, but if you don't pass the baton well, you're going to lose. You'll be disqualified. And so we want to work with you all as you are, are doing great work with young people to pass the baton onto campuses that have vibrant campus ministries. So many of those may be focus schools, not all of them. There are some other great schools that don't have focus, but do they have a vibrant Catholic presence? And, and if, if they don't, don't go to that school because you will lose your face. Statistically, it's game over. And so you got to have a plan. And when you do, you won't just survive, you will thrive. This is just so rich and so vital for today. And I love the, uh, not just the content, but the passion with which you communicate what we really all need to do. So I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us on this uh, podcast. This is rich and we need to shout it from the housetops and keep this whole momentum moving forward in terms of developing that personal relationship with Jesus that transforms everything we do in our lives. So thank you again for being with us. And uh, for our audience, if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to leave a comment as well to encourage us on our future programming. We also want to thank our student intern, Alex Shire, for assisting in the production of this podcast. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.